in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Bend down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. Coming to you from the Al Fresco Recording Studios of Nipty Radio, high atop 107 Columbia, where we are sweating bullets in this marvelous 70 degree weather. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the Nipty Practice Tips. This week, we will be addressing the third part of our hopefully four-part series on suppression hearings with Huntley hearings and the right to counsel hearings. Let's begin with Huntley or voluntariness hearings. When the issue to be decided is the voluntariness of the statement made by a defendant to law enforcement while the defendant is in custody, as a result of questioning by the law enforcement officers, the burden is on the people to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that the statement was made by the defendant after knowing an intelligent waiver of his or her rights. This burden rests on the people from the outset of the hearing and never shifts. Based on this heavy burden, it is incumbent upon the people to be sure that there is sufficient evidence as to how the defendant was treated by law enforcement during his or her time in custody, and of course, during the time of the questioning of the defendant. Although the people bear this heavy burden to establish that the defendant's statements were voluntary, this does not mean that they are mandated to produce all police officers who had contact with the defendant from the time of arrest to the time the challenge statement was elicited. This was held in People v. Witherspoon, a Court of Appeals case from 1985, and restated recently in the case of People v. Mitchell, a First Department case from April of this year. In that case, the court properly denied the defendant's suppression motion. The hearing evidence established the voluntariness of the defendant's statement, which followed Miranda warnings and waivers, and which were not accompanied by any coercive circumstances. There is no evidence that anything coercive occurred during the overnight and morning periods during which the defendant was lodged at a police station before the investigating detective administered the warnings and began the interrogation. Under these circumstances, there was no need to call every person that came into contact with the defendant. However, be sure that when you are dealing with such a case, and the cross-examination developed some question as to what was being done with or to the defendant during the time when he or she was not being questioned, it is important to present witnesses that will help you meet your burden of proving the voluntariness beyond a reasonable doubt. As the court wrote, this burden does not mean that they are mandated to produce all police officers who had contact with the defendant from arrest to the time of the challenge statement. If the Miranda warnings were required to be given, the people must introduce evidence of exactly how the rights were presented to the defendant with the specific content of what the officer said to the defendant and how he or she responded to each of the individual questions. You must not present this evidence in a conclusory fashion, such as asking the officer if all the proper warnings were given and if the defendant responded in a positive way. This will not meet your burden. Also, all written material that was signed by the defendant in acknowledging he or she received the warnings and understood the questions should be introduced into evidence at the hearing. The purpose of the Miranda warnings is to ensure that the person in custody understands the rights that she will be giving up if he chooses to make a statement to law enforcement personnel at that time. What they are not required to do is to communicate those rights in some ritualistic formula, which, if not followed, 
results in suppression. In the case of People v. Williams from 1984, the Court of Appeals wrote, although a suspect must be apprised of his or her rights, providing a general legal education is not the business of the police or the courts. It must be shown that the individual grasped that he or she, one, did not have to speak to the interrogator, two, that any statement might be used to the subject's disadvantage, and that an attorney's assistance would be provided upon request at any time and before questioning was continued. What will suffice to meet this burden will vary from case to case. There are situations where Miranda warnings are not required to be given, such as where the police are conducting an investigation and no one is in custody, or where a defendant, despite being in custody, may make a spontaneous statement. Under any circumstances, the burden still remains with the people, and the court must determine, in the context of a spontaneous statement, whether police conduct should reasonably have been anticipated to evoke a statement from the defendant and whether it can be said under the circumstances that the inculpatory statement was made without apparent external cause. There must be no subtle maneuvering by the police or some functional equivalent to questioning, such as any conduct that would be expected to prompt a response by the defendant. The spontaneous statement can be made during conversations with law enforcement officers, the subject of which would not be expected to prompt an incriminating response from the defendant. Let's turn now to a right to counsel hearing. While the issue of the right to counsel at the time a defendant makes a statement may result in the suppression of a statement made by the defendant, the burden is different from those cases where the voluntariness of the statement is at question. When the issue revolves around whether the defendant was represented by counsel or the right to counsel had attached before the statement was taken, the people have the initial burden of going forward to justify the police interrogation. Once that is done, it is then the defense burden to ultimately show that he or she was represented by counsel. This will be found in People v. Rosa, the Court of Appeals, 1985. If the people meet their initial burden, then the ultimate burden shifts to the defense to establish by a preponderance of the evidence the defendant was deprived of the right to counsel. When the right to counsel issue is addressing a subsequent identification procedure, the rules are still the same as the ones we have just discussed. If the defense contends that the defendant was deprived of his or her right to counsel at an identification procedure such as a lineup, the burdens are the same. The people have the initial burden of going forward with credible evidence that the defendant was not deprived of the right to counsel. If the people meet that burden, the ultimate burden shifts to the defense to establish by a preponderance of the evidence the defendant was deprived of his or her right to counsel. When a defendant who is in custody invokes the right to counsel, or it has attached by operation of law, it is indelible. The Court of Appeals in People v. West in 1993 identified the circumstances under which a defendant's right to counsel attaches and remains in the factual context of determining the admissibility of statements made to law enforcement personnel. The state right to counsel attaches indelibly in two situations. First, the right attaches indelibly upon the commencement of a formal proceeding whether or not the defendant has actually retained or requested a lawyer. 
Underlying this principle is a recognition that once formal proceedings have commenced, the character of the matter changes from investigatory to accusatory. The right to counsel both protects the accused in dealing with the coercive power of the state and ensures that any waiver of the rights will be knowing and intelligent. When a defendant who is in custody invokes his or her right to counsel, he or she cannot subsequently waive that right to counsel without the counsel being present. These are not the circumstances, however, when an individual is not in custody and invokes the right to counsel. Under such circumstances, he or she may subsequently waive that right to counsel and make a statement to law enforcement without an attorney being present. The courts have consistently held that when a defendant is invoking the right to counsel, it must be an unequivocal request to counsel. Anything less than that will not be considered by the courts to be the defendant invoking his or her right to counsel. For the authority for the many issues we've discussed today, please be sure to read the Nipty Practice Tip on this topic. Equally important, there are numerous memos within the PE addressing the right to counsel, the voluntariness of statement, investigative questioning, spontaneous statements, and the like that all will add greatly to your knowledge of this area. As always, we want to thank our crack producer, Jonathan Marconi Crispino. To all of you out there, be well and stay ready, my friends. 